Let's start here. I assume that you know Alice Cooper. You know, as you think of Alice Cooper, is not an actual person. There is a man who changed his name to Alice Cooper. He's the guy we're talking about. Originally, Alice Cooper was the name of the band he was in. But as I said, you know, that's not his real name. And what if I told you his real name is subjectively scarier than the name Alice Cooper? This man's real name is Vincent Damon Fournier. Only a man who lived his life with this name. A man a man named Vincent Damon Fournier. I think that's how you pronounce it. Fournier. Does anyone know? I'll tell you who knows. It's Alice Cooper. Let's figure out what food he is. This thing could be your food. Welcome, one and all, to This Band Could Be Your Food. I'm your host, Nathan Palin, full-time musician, lifelong foodie, and rogue chef, and not to mention future sommelier. So if this is your first time taking this show in, this is a show where all of your favorite bands come to make a deal at the crossroads of life and stop to have a bite to eat at the charming little diner on the corner. Today's diner is Alice's Restaurant, and Mr. Cooper will be leading the charge. I had hoped that this was going to be a Halloween spectacular, but no. We'll have to settle for a Thanksgiving episode. And hey, I just tied it all together with that Alice restaurant bit. You know that tune? Arlo Guthrie wrote it. It's the only Thanksgiving-themed song I'm aware of, other than Over the River and Through the Woods, but, but I digest. Back to the man we know as Alice Cooper. He legally changed his name in 1975 once he parted ways with the original members of the band for legal reasons. Something that you're going to learn today is that Vincent, I mean Alice, is a very business-savory fella. Do you hear what I just did there? Two puns within like a minute. What else? Uh, Alice is one of the best golfers out there as well. Like many musicians who gave up drugs and alcohol, golf became his obsession. Joining me today on the show is none other than the drummer of doom, Charlie Schmidt, the beat keeper of our band The Last Nights, and front person for his own gothy roots rock band, Del Judas. He's a huge Alice Cooper fan, and he led the charge for this deep dive, and it was another fascinating one. Let's kick things off with a random Alice fact that Charlie and I neglected to talk about. You know that big famous Hollywood sign? Well, it was falling apart in the 70s. The third O had fallen down the hill. Someone set fire to the second L. It was chaos. Anyways, Alice Cooper led the charge by getting it fixed. He went and bought an O for $28,000. Seemed like a bargain, right? So anyways, thank you, Vincent. Let's fire up this conversation with Charlie all about Alice Cooper. Sometimes when Man, myth, the legend. Yes. What do you think of Alice Cooper when you think of there's like he's a guy very complicated. I mean it's the simple answer obviously is you know he's this weirdo horror story legitimate like scary shows. Every time I watch a clip I am instantly brought to like Friday the 13th and my first thoughts of seeing horror movies like accidentally on the television when I was like five or six. Like I think The Exorcist was on at one point. Carrie was on at one point and like both of those just gave me terrible nightmares 
Yeah. And like, I, they scarred me. I could not watch any of the genre for maybe to like five years ago, I was mm -hmm. able to watch a slasher film. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, Alice Cooper, I always like to say is like, yeah, I've seen him many times. Yeah. Yeah. Multiple times. Yeah. I've probably seen him about four or five times. Wow. And, uh, it's like, you know, night of the living dead in like, in like neon technicolor. And at the end of the film, candy pours out of the screen. <laughs> it's just wonderful. It's like carnival. It's, it's like, it really is in a way, it's a newly found and now newly lost art that mm. someone like Alice Cooper would, would want to give a show like this to the public. It's all the macabre and, and, and interesting things that he, he loved as a kid as yeah. a, uh, a, a, you know, like films like the tickler and all these like really crazy, like, you know, he loved horror movies when he was a kid. Yeah. Um, but was also scared of them too. Like initially. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then he, you know, he found in it the camp, mm. which was like, you know, he says at one point yeah. in his book, like, you know, you could see the zipper on the suit and it was funny and he loved it. You know, there's like, you know, I mean, I don't know. When I was a kid, I was more scared of the movie Swamp Thing, even though Swamp Thing was a good guy. <laughs> he just scared me. He was just was kind of creepy looking, you know? Yeah. But, um, you know, Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah. All these like classic films that they, that they grew up with that they'd never seen anything like that before. Yeah. And it just, it kind of just burned a hole in his brain. And he was like, I got to do this totally. as a live show. And, uh. I got to tell you, you know, it's like every time I see him, there's always something he does where it's like, you know, um, I think the last time I saw him was at a Barclays Center with uh, Motley Crue. And, um, you know, he, he <laughs> just he just had like a he just had a giant Frankenstein just come out from the back of the stage when he when he played You're My Frankenstein. And it was just so literal, but also so fun. Yeah. You know, it's like it's fun as humans that we can create these, these things. And he's sort of at the forefront of it of like, you know, he's going to give you this, like this evil carnival. That's like just so awesome, you know, for sure. And, and then the inventor of shock rock mm -hmm. invented the whole genre. One of the frequent like changing points in most musicians careers is the day that they heard the Beatles. And it's like the same thing with, with Alice Cooper at that time, there was nothing like it. And, the music was enough to be shocking. Like they just never heard anything like that. Mm -hmm. And then he went to, to tell his buddy, I think it was Glenn, who is, ends up being the guitar player of Alice Cooper's band. He's like, oh my God, you should have heard this music that was on the radio. And he, and he said, wait till you see what they look like. You know, mm -hmm. they have these crazy Liverpool accents and long hair. And, you know, at those times, uh, Alice Cooper got in trouble for having long hair at school. Mm -hmm. Before that, it was all buzz cuts. And the idea was that if, if, the principal could grab you by the hair and take you somewhere, then it was too long. So you, <laughs> that was the cutoff point. Yeah. But yeah, that music, the Beatles music was sort of the, the point where all the people that he was hanging out with decided like, I want to do that. That's what I want to be when I grow up is I want to be a rock and roll star. And I want to, I want to be playing rock and roll music. Hmm. So he calls up his buddies who are on the, on the track team. I don't know. A lot of people know this. He was a skinny track star like mm -hmm. his their team was 72 and oh they were the state champions their track team and not to mention the fact that they live in phoenix arizona have you ever been to phoenix arizona yeah 
It's the hottest place in America, as far as I can tell. Yeah, yeah, it is. So not only are they running track, but they're running track in like 90 degree, 100 degree weather. Mm -hmm. So these guys are built to be playing long rock and roll shows. (laughs) Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like that is a workout. Yeah. Uh, And and I want to talk so much more about the history of, of Alice Cooper, the band, as well as the person we now know as Alice Cooper, who eventually changed his name. Vincent Damien Fernier, which I think is already a horrific name. <laughs> Vincent Damien Fernier. I mean, like that is already like a horror character's name. Yeah, or it sounds like yeah, like a, a horror genre director. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of cool, but yeah, totally. A little hard to pronounce. Alice Cooper definitely rolls off the tongue more, for sure, more effectively. Yeah. From the top top of your head, what's the first food that you thought of when you thought of Alice Cooper? That's a tough one off the top of my head, just, you know, chili cheese fries or something. Really? <laughs> just, I don't know, you know, like, yeah, something that's like, but I, you know, it could be many things, honestly, because he's, he's, he stands for many things, songwriting, rock and roll, you know, theatrics. Sure. So, you know, I think a lot of different foods could, could be plugged in there, but yeah. I gotta say, the first thing that I thought of was something that I ate in Cambodia, which was deep fried tarantulas. Huh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I, cause I just thought like Alice Cooper should be a little bit creepy, mm-hmm. right? It should be something that you wouldn't necessarily want to eat, but then maybe when you get in there, you'd be like, oh, this is actually isn't so bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Deep fried tarantulas I had, they, they kind of taste like shrimp. I could see that. Yeah. I mean, they are land crustaceans, right? Sort yeah. Of. I mean, that's true. Maybe that's why. They're like arachnids. They're, yeah. You know, they're way creepier than crabs or lobsters, I think. But, totally. Yeah. You can still eat, eat the legs, though. That was the funny part. You just munch the legs first and then the body. <laughs> oh. Yeah. There's a lot of creepy things I ate in Cambodia. Well, there was a lot of creepy things available to eat in Cambodia. Mm. Like, they would have the exact same structure as, like, your average, like, nut cart around New York City, like your hot nuts, you're going to have like these little tubes mm-hmm. that have like, here's your almonds, here's your pecans, here's your whatever, what have you. Uh, but instead of that, there would be spicy grasshoppers, spicy scorpions, mm. bugs. Yeah. And you could just, they just fill up a tube and give you a tube of these like dried insects. Oh. And that's just part of your day. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if we could get these in America, I, I a hundred percent would have said, yeah, we're going to, we're going to do that. Right. You do like a, I I would have done that deep fried tarantula with nacho cheese sauce, something like that. And yeah, yeah. That's, that's kind of what, you know, something you could find at a carnival (laughs) or uh, something that's, you know, (laughs) yeah. But what did you choose? Well, frequently when I'm trying to figure out what the food is, is I'll look at where the band is from. Uh, mm-hmm. Alice Cooper was born in Detroit, Michigan. When he was seven, he and his family, well, it's it basically his parents found Jesus and they gave up their gambling ways because before that, do you know how they made money? Their family would go to the track mm-hmm. and they would regularly bet on horses. And that's how they made the majority of their income. Mm-hmm. Uh, but meanwhile, Alice Cooper's grandfather, his father's father, was an evangelical minister. So the family decided that they needed to get away from that and they moved to Phoenix, which is where his folks lived. And in Phoenix, his father started 
becoming a, a, a minister. He, he, be, he became born again, born again Christian. So he was baptized and then started, started preaching the word of the Lord. Mm-hmm. So then you've got Phoenix. Now the band, they moved to LA. All right. So everybody's moving around all the time. He lives in Chicago for a while. They live in, they live in Greenwich, Connecticut for a while. They're mm-hmm. all over the place. So it's, it's impossible to, to tie the band on to like a region. Mm. But if they did, do you know what the big, one of the biggest foods in Arizona is? What's up? Chimichangas. Huh. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Because they're so close to Mexico. So they sort of have this, this like Mexican food uh-huh. sort of blend. Yeah. Yeah. Which would have been good. I love chimichangas. Yeah, chimichangas are great. That'd been great. Um, but alas, we had to find a new origin. So I typed into the Google, "What food does the devil eat?" Mm. Yeah, uh, it says that uh, the devil is kind of known to eat a lot of like small animals, rodents, things of, of that nature. Uh huh. But then, but then something else popped up that caught my eye. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The deviled egg. Oh. Yeah. At first glance, I thought, well, this is kind of a food that I see more like a like a church potluck. Mm-hmm. Which is perfect because Alice Cooper in his later days also found the Lord, also is a very devout Christian. Mm-hmm. So, a deviled egg. Think about it. It's called it's got the word devil in it. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. But it's not it's not the it's not the devil. It's not the devil, no. It's a it's, delicious egg. This is very true. Yeah. It's very true. You pass around at a, at a potluck. I dig that. So, yeah, I guess you'll walk us through the recipe at some point, right? Yeah, you got it. We'll get to that next. But anyways, we'll just, we'll just say it for the time being. Alice Cooper is a deviled egg. I love it. Let's do it. day at school turns out in phoenix arizona and i forget the name of the school they went cortez i feel it was Mm. cortez was the name of the high school they went to in phoenix arizona there was the second annual talent show and so these kids that were so into the beatles they decided we're gonna we're gonna put together a little group and we're gonna call it the earwigs get it ah earwigs beatles earwigs got it yeah so play on words there yeah so they get their buddies together and they get his good friend mitch he says, all right, you're going to play bass. And then he, he has another friend who actually knows how to play the guitar. He says, all right, you're going to play the guitar. And so they do all of these like Weird Al style mockumentary songs about the Beatles, like a playoff of words off of Beatles songs. Mm. We would change the words to uh, Beatles songs to be sports oriented. Instead of uh, she loves you, yeah, yeah, it'll be I'll beat you, yeah, yeah. So we decided we'll put on wigs so that we'll be like the Beatles, only we'll call it the earwigs. And, and interestingly enough, for, for unknown reasons, they decided that they were going to set the entire stage up with props. Like, I think they put up like a spider web somewhere. There was definitely a fake guillotine on stage hmm. at their very first show hmm. for really no good reason whatsoever. They hmm. already kind of like had this horror movie sort of idea like let's fill the stage Mm. then they'd hired about 10 of their friends lady friends to go up and scream at the front to sort of recreate a Beatles show Mm. and they didn't say if they won or not but sort of that very first you know moment of being on stage and sort of feeling what that whole thing was going to be like was very addictive for them 
Mm-hmm. And they said, all right, let's try to do this for real. So at that point, they had to learn how to play their instruments. But it happens so often, you know, the yeah. Go-Go's. Who else? Leonard Skinner. Leonard Skinner, the Ramones, mm-hmm. tons of bands. Yeah. I love that idea. That's actually not totally true. I mean, that first version of the Alice Cooper band did feature Vince Ferner, otherwise known as Alice Cooper, and his best friend, Dennis Dunway, who didn't know the bass, had to learn the bass guitar. The two of them recruited Neil Smith, who was another track team member, also a drummer. He knew how to play. So those three jocks ended up knocking on the doors of the two dirtbag guitar players in school, Glenn Buxton and Michael Bruce. And then there you go. You got a band. Carry on. They put together the band. They're called the Earwigs. And uh, they're, they're starting to do pretty well. After a while, they decide to change their name to the Spiders. I said one day I'd find your game. Well, now you know they're my same. I've tried to take me for a ride. So that's kind of the beginning of them really incorporating the horror movie sort of thing. They put up a big fake spider web behind them. And then they end up actually recording a hit single. Huh. Yeah. What was that song called? It's called Don't Blow Your Mind. It was released in 1966 and got up to number 11, like in Tucson, Arizona. So they said, all right, we, we have something here. And Vincent, Vincent was still in high school. His, like the other guys in the band had just graduated. So, you know, they're at like a really pivotal age in their life. We got one kid who's about to graduate and the rest of them are like, let's get out of town. And so that, that, that's what inspires them. Like we're going to move to LA, mm. which I guess if you live in Phoenix, Arizona, that makes the most sense. There's so many bands that do that. Like if you're from an area, yeah, a bigger city ends up being like your gravitational pull. Sure. I mean, cause I'm sure Arizona was, was probably pretty, pretty desolate at that point in time. Yeah. There was, there was one other band, the tubes. So they decided to move to LA. Apparently on their way to LA, they actually get into a van accident. Yep. I remember Yeah, in his book, he talks a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, it's kind of funny actually how he, uh, he eventually makes his, makes his way to, uh, Frank Zappa's house. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it seems like everything in Alice Cooper's career was like, I mean, I'm sure there were, there were some closed doors, but it seems like a lot of it was a lot of green lights, you know, cause Frank Zappa comes downstairs and they play their songs for him. He's like, your songs are two minutes long. They don't make any sense. There's like no segue parts or anything. And he was like, I yeah. absolutely love it. Yeah. He just was like flipped out and was like, this is great. There was a path that they got to Frank Zappa. It was, there was this band called the GTOs. It mm-hmm. was this girl band that ended up being a big inspiration for them. It was the GTOs that sort of saw Alice Cooper and said, well, if you want to be scary, you should start putting makeup around your eyes. Yeah. Because I think that's what the GTOs are doing. The GTOs sound like this. So the GTOs are apparently actually like living, I think right next door to Frank Zappa's cabin. Like there's a cabin that's like the recording studio Mm. that he's, you know, is like his main, main place where they're going to do the audition. Yes. So the GTOs start telling 
Frank Zappa, you got to check out this band. There's like this energy. People go to see him play and they leave because they're so offended by what they're doing. But they're not <laughs> leaving because they're bored. They're leaving because they're just terrified. Yeah. Yeah. And so Frank Zappa's like, well, that sounds like the right, right thing for me to do on my label. Because he was just starting up a label. Right. I'm not sure if Alice Cooper was the first band on that label, but pretty close. They finally get an audition where they're going to show up and play for, for Frank Zappa. Mm-hmm. Frank Zappa says, all right, show up at 7. So they show up at 6.30 a.m. and they start setting up and they start playing. And then Frank comes down with like a bathrobe and a cigarette and he's like, what are you guys doing? He's like, well, you told us to be here at 7. And he said, 7 p.m., dummy. <laughs> <laughs> Which for Frank Zappa, hardworking guy, notoriously really hard on his band, really hardworking, like the, the mothers of invention, they would practice like six to eight hours a day when mm. they were on tour. All the time. Mm -hmm. And that was like part of the thing. So if you were going to be in the band, you had to, ex you had to expect to be working. So, I mean, clearly this really showed right, that, right. you know, this is a band that's really dedicated to what they're doing and, and they're going to be there and, and they're going to be professional. So sure. that was a, a good way to, to do it. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, they, they played a couple of songs and they, and he's just like, I don't get it because they, they, at the time they were doing like tempo changes in the middle of the songs that made no sense. Right. Their biggest inspiration at that point was Pink Floyd era Pipers at the Gates of Dawn. Mm. Have you heard that album? No. So yeah, this in a nutshell is what that first Pink Floyd Piper at the Gates of Dawn sounds like. Sid Barrett was the man as far as it comes to psych rock. Now let's compare that to the very first Alice Cooper record, Pretties For You, released on Straight Records back in 1969. Straight Records was one of two labels that Frank Zappa was starting. One was called Straight Records, the other was called Bizarre Records. Straight and Bizarre were both distributed through Warner Brothers. Listen for the similarities here. Let me be what a way for one to Actually, yeah, I have heard Pipers at the Gates of Dawn. It it didn't it didn't just didn't didn't make any sense to me. Yeah, it's it's pretty like, nonsense. What is this? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very different than the Pink Floyd that most people come to think of these days. Sure. Yeah. Well, Sid Barrett, man. I mean, again, Alice Cooper knew Sid Barrett. Lived in a stayed in the house with him for a while. Did he? Yeah, absolutely. There's a story of Sid Barrett. He came downstairs, and Sid Barrett was sitting there just laughing at a bowl of cornflakes or a box of cornflakes or something. And <laughs> apparently the, the cornflakes on the front of the box were dancing and singing for him. And Alice Cooper was just like, okay, cool. You know, <laughs> well, one thing about the Alice Cooper folks is they didn't really do a lot of drugs. They were into the weed. Mm. Well, at least like originally, I'm not sure. I know that certain members of the group kind of started going off to do their own thing, but He's kind of like, he doesn't really talk too much about that in his book. He, he talks about being around it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, obviously we know he wasn't straight edge. Obviously he got sober. Yes. Later on in his career. Whereas like maybe other bands had a lot of natural talent and just, you know, were taking drugs just to pass the time. Alice Cooper was on the other side of that. They were working up toward having better and better songs. And sure. so, yeah, that probably what didn't really play much of a role. Alice seems to have like a pretty good, pretty great family, actually. 
and wasn't yeah. like very wayward. So I don't think he was much into drug culture. Very true. Yeah. Right after they get signed by Frank Zappa, Frank says, well, we need, you need to get a manager. Allow me to drop in quickly to introduce an important character in this story who is Shep Gordon. Shep at this moment in 1968 is a pot dealer. Story goes that Shep's in a room with the GTOs and the Alice Cooper band and everyone is remarking on how Frank Zappa just recently signed the band and Frank has insisted they get a manager. So the GTOs are looking around the room and they say, hey, Shep, you look like a manager. Now Shep being the savvy ladies man says, well, yes, I am a manager. He wasn't a manager at that time, but he took on the role. And not just that, he ended up in later days managing Blondie, Teddy Pendergrass, Ann Murray, George Clinton, Gypsy Kings, Kenny Frickin' Loggins, Pointer Sisters, Rick James, even Pink Floyd. And that's the shortened list. Oh, and he still manages Alice Cooper to this day without a contract. Pretty good. Carry on. Shep went to one of the shows and... The notorious thing that always happened at the show is they would play two, three songs, and then everybody would leave. And it would be kind of remarkable because a lot of the times they were opening for The Doors. They were good friends with The Doors, like mm. just because they were both L.A. bands. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And to think that people who came to go see The Doors hated Alice Cooper so much that they left before The Doors play. Oh. I, yeah, poor Doors. I, I, th- I had heard like at, at one show Alice Cooper decided to make like this fake window and he would like sing through a window. <laughs> Always the clever stageman. Rock and roll vaudeville. Yeah. Around this time while the band is is hanging around LA, and I, and I forget if he did this before or after meeting Frank Zappa, but they decided to change their name from the Spiders to Naz. Hmm. And that only worked for a little while until they discovered that Todd Rundgren also had a band called Naz. <laughs> Just so you know, Naz actually comes from a Yardbird song, which says Naz are blue. I don't know the song myself. It sounds like this. So then after they discover that, they say, we need a new name, our band. And apparently there was a TV show going on at the time called Mayberry RFD was the spinoff show from the Andy Griffith show. Mayberry RFD. All right. I don't remember it. I never heard of it. No, nah, it's way before my time. Yeah. This show was, was the vehicle for all the stars to sort of leave and go do other things. Andy Griffith, I don't, I don't know what he goes off to do. Opie goes off to direct a million movies. Okay. Ron Howard. Oh, right. Opie. <laughs> Opie. Don Knotts famously goes on to be on Three's Company. Mr. Furley, was it? <laughs> it was Mr. Furley. Yeah, man. And, and so they're sort of just left with all the bit characters. So they bring in some new people. And Aunt B initially was the housekeeper for this, for this couple. And she leaves and she gets replaced by Alice Ghostly, character name Alice Cooper. Because it can't be understated how much of a TV freak the members of the Alice Cooper band are. Mm-hmm. This is like the beginning days of like TV being in everyone's household. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. like, this is the first generation. That's just like living off of watching TV. So when he came up with this name, he says it just came off the top of his head. He's like, we should just have a name that's like Betty Crocker. 
plain, <laughs> boring, because like they're gonna think they're coming to see some some lady playing some, you know, hippie acoustic folk songs. Right. So they said, let's get a name like that. And then when people come to see us, they're gonna be even more horrified. Yeah. So that was like the first name that came up, and they're like, Yeah, Alice Cooper. So that's what stuck. Huh. And once again, it was the name of the band. It wasn't the name of the guy. Like Alice Cooper Band was a five-piece band. Mm-hmm. And anybody in the know knows that this is the band that deserves all the credit. Like these songs, like his most famous songs were written by this group of people. You know, I'm 18, school's out, caught in a dream. Like all the, all the good songs mm-hmm. that we like, that are the classic Alice Cooper songs. You know, it's a band. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and they always had great producers too. I mean, you know, they were in the uh, the heyday of of you know, obviously Bernie Taupin and yeah, all these other like really awesome producers that helped yeah. them. Um, you know, Bob Ezra. Bob Bob Ezra, he comes in for the the third record because mm-hmm. the, they put out two records before, which actually sound a little bit more like Piper's at the Gates of Dawn. Mm-hmm. This is about the time where they decided, you know what, L.A. is not going to be our thing. So they move to Michigan. Mm-hmm. They find a house in Pontiac. So they all kind of move into this house that has like a big outdoor area. They're able to practice all the time. They're able to make noise. And they're actually able to make a living too. Mm-hmm. Because when they, were in a, when they were in LA, you know, frequently the deal is they're doing these showcase shows, you know, trying to get noticed mm-hmm. and they're not making any money. So they would frequently go back to Arizona and play gigs there where they would actually make money and they would take that money back to LA just so they could survive. Right. And so after they started getting this reputation where people just came to the shows to leave, they realized this is not going to be our scene. Mm. So it just so happened that they got booked for this festival out in Michigan. And on the bill, we're just all these local Michigan bands. Bands like MC5. Iggy and the Stooges. Bob Seger. So anyways, they go do this show and they are like basically playing between and, and they're like, we're going to blow the roof off of this joint. Mm-hmm. And then the MC5 comes out and they're like, we're going to sound terrible next to this. <laughs> but they did their show. They ended up like playing louder and they had all this theatrics and that crew just loved him. For Vincent, he's like, well, let's move back to my birthplace, Michigan. He's born in Detroit. And that was the kicker too. When they showed up and they said, Hey, you know, I'm from here. They're like, ah, you're welcome back home. Yeah. (laughs) So they, they felt like they were at home. So this ended up being like the new, the new place where these guys were finding the love and the appreciation for what they were doing. When you live in the Midwest, especially at that time, it turns out the radio stations just kind of had a better rock and roll format than like what was going on in LA, I suppose. Like Mm. LA was kind of more, there was more of the hippie music. The Midwest was really gravitating towards more, I guess these days, like how, how we feel about like classic rock radio stations. You know, they were, they were playing like Iggy and the Stooges on the radio. Like Bob Seger had his first hits. Mm-hmm. And one of the bands that they would play a lot was the Guess Who. These eyes cry every night for you. 
And they really just loved how the guess whose music would jump off the speakers, as they said. And they said, if we are going to record a proper record, we're going to need to get this guy. Who is this guy? And that guy is, what's his name again? Bob Ezra. Bob Ezra. That's the guy. Yeah. So Shep starts calling Bob Ezra, and that whole gang is, has heard about Alice Cooper, and they're like, I don't think we want to do that. But apparently they bug him so much that eventually he just comes to a show just so that he can say, okay, I came, I went, and I didn't like it. Actually, um, that fact is not correct. Oh, yeah? Actually, uh, yeah. It, it was actually Jack Richardson who um, who they were after. Oh, that's right. Who, who famously produced... Um, the guess who? Oh, okay. And uh, you know, obviously, when they heard his work, yeah, like you were mentioning, the 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 music just jumped out the speaker. Yeah. And um, so yeah, when they when they approached him originally, they hounded him so much that he was like, you know what, send the kid. He had a student at the time, or I don't know what you, what you want to call it, an apprentice at the yeah, time, yeah, yeah. Uh, named Bob Ezrin. Mm-hmm. And uh, lo and behold, Bob Ezrin being very new to the game, he saw Alice Cooper and was like, "What the heck is this?" <laughs> and was uh, was his interest was was piqued. Yeah. One of the things that all these people saw in Alice Cooper, the band, was that mm. they were having a real reaction from the audience. Like the crowd was leaving, but mm. to them. They're like, this is something that we can mold and craft. Like, if we can turn this into something that people are going to stick around and stay, mm-hmm. then we we have a phenomenon in our hands. Yeah. So that was always the ultimate plan that everybody was was aiming for. It's like, we got to take this thing that is so weird that nobody can describe it. Not even Frank Zappa can describe what it is. Mm-hmm. And then turn it into something real. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the members of... Uh, the Alice Cooper band sort of say that that third record was going to be their make or break record. Now a a good producer can go in and tactfully inform a band that song needs to be edited. Usually a band, when they have a song, they're like, ah, this is the song, but he was able to get in there. I I believe that I'm 18 was initially like a six minute song. Mm. So he went in and just said, nah, you got to cut this and you got to put that and, and blah, 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 reorder it. Bob Ezrin is the guy that came in and was able to translate what Alice Cooper was doing into a good record because the band knew this was their third record and the last record for which they were contracted on Frank Zappa's label. Uh, so they knew this was the make or break moment for the band. Right, right. And they had, they had also said like the first record was all like earwigs, spiders songs. Mm-hmm. The second record was all Naz songs. Right. But this record was the first one where it was like, these are the songs with this Alice Cooper name. And that was the record that spawned I'm 18. The band really claims that was really written because they knew what their audience was. Like they had talked to people. They said, who, is, who are the number one demographic of people who are buying records these days? Mm-hmm, and they're mm-hmm. like, well, you know, it's the people that have like, they've just graduated high school or they're about to, they have jobs. They're living at home. They've got this extra money. The 18-year-olds are buying all the records. So they said, oh, well, obviously, let's write a song for them. And that's, <laughs> that's, where, that's where I'm 18 comes from. Perfect marketing right there. Yeah. I mean, Alice Cooper has always been the epitome of intelligent marketing. Yeah. That band, throughout their entire career, just has shenanigan after shenanigan. Absolutely. And they're always calculated. Everything yeah. that they do. 
For I mean, we could talk about the chicken incident. Or the, the bus in Piccadilly Square. Let's talk about the bus in Piccadilly Square. Piccadilly, if you don't know, you Americans, Piccadilly Square is, this is in London. They're about to play Wembley Stadium, by the way. And so they need to draw some attention. And so someone takes a, a nude picture of, of Alice Cooper laying down with a, a snake covering his uh, genitalia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and it just mysteriously breaks down in the middle of Piccadilly Square. Whoops. Interestingly enough, the band actually does not get arrested for it. Yeah, somehow the driver does. <laughs> I heard that. Said the driver's still in jail. That may have been a joke. Yeah, it was a joke. Yeah. But yeah, I think he took the heat. Poor guy. Poor guy. I hope Alice hooked them up. Yeah. But the English crowd really dug what Alice Cooper was trying to do the whole time. Like that, that band understood that if you tell everyone you're not allowed to see this, like this is, this is too risque, please don't go to the show because it's, you're going to see things that you, you shouldn't see. Right. Then everybody wants to go. Absolutely. Yeah. That piece of information guided so many of the decisions that they made throughout their career. Like, what can we do to tick off the PMRC, to tick off everybody? So there's a lady in England that was just appalled and, and just wrote out, like, the, the filth that they're doing on this show should never be seen. Do you know the lady? I don't know okay, I don't who know it was, that. but it was equivalent to our United States Tipagore. Yes, exactly. Who was sort of going up against, uh, you know, metal lyrics and and metal bands and, and stuff of that sort. The person in question I speak of here is Mary Whitehouse. She created the National Viewers and Listeners Association, which was an organization that criticized avenues that glorified violence, bad language, and portrayals of sex. They were all up in the BBC's grill. I'm sure you could guess she was a devout Christian. She did her best to beat down sexual revolution, feminism, children's rights, LGBTQ rights, even initiating a private prosecution of the newspaper Gay News. She hated everything. Even Doctor Who. Remember that show? Anyways, she persuaded the BBC to ban the video Schools Out, and Nellis Cooper straight up thanked her and sent her a bouquet of flowers. Carry on. Yeah, I mean, the Beatles were bad enough. Yeah. Then the Stones. Yeah. I mean, you know, and yeah, it was, but I was part of their success was like, you know, being, you know, being rule breakers. That was, that was their thing. That's what they wanted to do. Totally. And it was a business model. I mean, it still mm-hmm. is today. For sure. Um, You know, if you, if you look at like Flaming Lips or something, it's like they do it in a different way where it's just. Sure. They break the rules. Like, why can't we have a ton of bubbles on our show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. uh, Totally. All these like little installments of visuals and stuff. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, For sure. That's, that's a really smart equation. The Ellis Cooper band was sort of the first group to take a look at the backdrop of all the bands that were playing. Like they would look at the Who and the Beatles and they're like, you just have this white backdrop. Why don't you just fill it? with with other stuff you know bring a show bring a vaudeville show mm-hmm. so I mean, it's easy to to make the equation to the shock rock like the marilyn manson mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the rob zombies and all that stuff but yeah mm-hmm. the flaming lips i never even thought about that yeah yeah and like and like what's going on today i you know i just got back from sound primavera and all of the headlining bands that played all play in front of big screens and you know, there's so much more going on these days that never was that way before. So, I mean, Alice Cooper basically invented that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he talks about when he lived in Detroit that there were all these, and this, it was the same thing when Quiet Riot um, or even Twisted Sister talked about 
being in New York. There were all these, like on Long Island too, there were all these small, like amphitheaters where they would just have shows. Yeah. And in Detroit, there were several of them and they would just ping around in the Midwest and just play these little arenas. Totally. You know, maybe they held 600, 1200 people. Yeah. And, they, um, and they'd pair up with like Iggy the Stooges one night and they'd pair up with Bob Seger another night, like all those bands. Yeah. Which became well-known bands. Like at that time, we're just the local groups. Yeah. But and, yeah, you could just put a couple of them together and that, that would fill one of those little auditoriums. Yeah. And they also said that if they were ever afraid that they weren't going to fill the auditorium, uh-huh. they would sanction it off because they knew it was more important for there to be people sort of spilling out of the theater trying to get in. Yeah, any it, way to create a buzz, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting too, when you think about like the the sort of culture at the time and how there were still, I mean, you know, Alice Cooper is born in 1948. You know, my parents were born in 1945. Jeez. And he was young when he was doing this, you know, but their his first real successful album came out in 1970. Mm-hmm. That's very early. Super early. People think, I think of Alice Cooper, I think of like maybe 75, 78. Oh yeah. No way, man. He was banging since the 60s. So it's it's interesting to think about how he was kind of really riding the crest of that wave, you know? For sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, 75, 78, that's sort of like the second half of his career. That's when he, that's when he splits from his original band. Right. Because they had done everything up to, there's one album after Billion Dollar Babies, but Billion Dollar Babies was their first number one hit right. album that went to the Billboard number one. Interestingly enough, for that tour, you know, as we had said, they'd been sort of filling their stage with all these horror movie stuff, but this is when they decide they're going to bring it to the next level. So they decide to hire the magician, James Randi. Do you know James Randi? No, not personally. Okay. Very... He's like Penn and Teller's number one favorite magician of all time. He kind of started out as like your regular Joe magician, but ended up being the guy that made a career out of debunking psychics and like the spoon benders. And uh-huh. there were there were all these like, you know, let's call them snake oil salesmen, people that were trying to fool others and make them think that it was like real. Right. Versus like magic where it's like, you're watching a show and we're going to fool you. Yeah. You know, there are these guys that are like, I can really read your mind. Oh, wait. And he went on TV, right? Yeah. And yeah, he would, he was pretty outspoken, right? And he created a lot of controversy amongst the. Totally. Okay. Yeah. There was a very famous psychic that came on. We'll call them spoon benders. And he would come out and and he did a thing where like he, he would take a spoon and then like rub it. And then it would, it would like bend. That was their thing. But really the, the trick was that the guy would just bend the spoon a million times. Right. And then he would be like, he could just rub it with his fingers and then the, the spoon would bend. So James Randi knew this and he replaced all of the guy's spoons with other spoons. <laughs> <laughs> I think he did it on like Johnny Carson, like did it on a national, national thing. Right. Yeah. But yeah, just ba- made a career out of that. And, and notoriously would carry around a check for a million dollars. So very simply, we have a $1 million uh, offer, a prize. They don't have to, to pay anything. They don't have to to compete with anybody. It's a simple prize. If anyone can do any paranormal, occult, or supernatural uh, feat or event of any kind under proper observing conditions, they get $1 million in cash. Anyway, so this this is the guy that you want on your team. Yeah. So he joins up with Alice Cooper and creates the guillotine prop. Now, Uh. we call it a prop. 
But it turns out it's actually a real guillotine. Uh-huh. Like Alice Cooper, the first time he saw it, he looked up and he's like, is that like some rubber thing? And he went up and felt it and it was like razor sharp. Whoa. A real, actual guillotine. Yeah. And they won't go into any more detail as to how it works. But, you know, he's the guy that like brings these real props and like created the whole guillotine, chopped the head head off the thing. You know, maybe created the the hanging, the noose hanging thing. Uh-huh. Like yeah. he's got another prop where, you know, they they do like a, a public hanging and the and the floor drops and you know, he pretends like he's hanging. Uh-huh. Which you gotta give it up for Mr. Cooper for doing all this stuff. Like I've seen that stuff and they said like they they would have a rope, but the prop would be they would have like a piano wire in the middle. Uh-huh. And that's what would prevent it from actually hanging him. Right. But the reality is is he would be up on a stool and they would kick it out and then he would just be hanging there. Yeah. And every time he did it, it'd be like, oh my God, is this the last time I'm going to do this, this trick? And in fact, there was one time where they did it, not on real stage. It was like, it was a rehearsal mm-hmm. and the piano wire breaks. Uh-oh. Snap. And as soon as I heard that snap, your, your, your self-preservation takes over. I felt the thing, as soon as I felt it more pressure than it should be, I snapped my head back and it went over like oh, that. Okay. If I would have had like a, Jay Leno chin, it would have it would have caught me, and it would have been bad news, really bad news. Yeah. But as soon as that went like this, I put my head up, and it slipped up. It burned me pretty good. Ooh. The rope burned me pretty good, and I did get knocked out when I went down through the floor because I dropped eight feet, you know, and boom, you know. But it was momentarily. I woke up and I went, "What was that?" And I looked at the rope, and I looked at the the wire was snapped. Because the next day we had a wire on there that would, would hold like an elephant, you know. Sure. <laughs> the wire was went from that big to like that big. I mean, I guess no risk, no reward. You look at Siegfried and Roy, you know. Yeah. It's like there's a lot of, I mean, and especially back then, there weren't a lot of like visual special effects that you could do outside of like what was just considered to be traditional simple magic, you know. I mean. Sure. There wasn't a lot. I mean, now it's like when Alice Cooper does his show, he's got like a lot of like horror props and stuff that were used in movies and film sets and stuff like that. So it looks a lot more believable. But um, yeah, it's interesting. You know what I found, you know, interesting about Alice Cooper's career, especially when like combing my way through his book, his audio book, mind you, is his, uh, the Hollywood vampires clan that he used to hang out with. Yeah. A lot of people don't know, but, he was really good friends with Keith Moon and John Lennon. Yes. Which is so random. Again, yeah. it's the age thing. Because you think of Alice Cooper, you think of, you know, the 70s. Beatlemania had come and gone, you know. But no, he was, again, like in the very early 70s. Yeah. I mean, 1970, when that when his third record came out, by the way. Like, that's right when the Beatles broke up. Right. So, yeah. So he's getting to know, like, the Beatles as they're on their, their next leg of Right, existence. they've broken up. Yeah, the Paul McCartney and John Lennon had split, obviously. So, yep. you know, Lennon was kind of spending some of his time in LA and, and, mm-hmm. and you know, obviously Keith Moon lived at Alice Cooper's house for a while. And I mean, he could I mean, not you, officially. Well, Keith, Keith Moon would live in whoever's house who would have him. Right, At the yeah. moment. So he would bounce around from one house for a month and then he'd stay at John Lennon's house and then he'd be at Harry Nielsen's house for a month. Yeah. It's just like whoever would take him. Definitely. Yeah. And so he's got a lot of colorful stories about uh, Keith Moon as well, which is kind of funny. Yeah. Because Keith Moon was quite the character. Yeah, but the Hollywood Vampires was quite a crew. There was uh, Ringo Starr, 
John Lennon, Harry Nielsen. I feel like maybe Joe Walsh made his way into there at some point. But it was essentially a club that was above the Rainbow Room. It was sort of like a hidden area. Yeah, it was like the attic almost. Yeah, so the rock stars would go in there and they said that, 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 that there was two rules. One was that John Lennon could not sit next to Harry Nielsen. There had to be a divider because those two always came together and they would they would talk to each other and like sort of exclude everybody else. Mm-hmm. The other rule was that they were not allowed to talk about music or fame or anything else. They right. just sort of had to be themselves. Yep. And then the third rule was that they were not allowed to hit on the girl that started the whole, the whole thing. I think it was the owner of the Rainbow Room. Uh, she was a waitress there, but she's the one who dubbed them the Hollywood vampires. Yes. And they had to tip her. That was the big thing. She yeah. was the highest tipped waitress in all of LA, they said. Mm-hmm. She just kept the place running. She kept everybody's drink topped off. <laughs> and uh, and they wouldn't let anybody else hit on her either. Yeah. So they were, you know, you tipped her, you took care of her, you made sure that she was looked after. And that was the rule. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's what everybody should do. Take care of your servers. Oh, yeah. hundred yeah. percent. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's interesting, you know, that whole Laurel Canyon thing too, where Alice Cooper eventually ended up living for a while. You yeah, know, he yeah, talks yeah. about getting off the road and buying, going to LA and buying the first house that looked, you know, you know, alluring to him. And it was, was right next door to Frank Zappa's house, I think. Right. Mm, I think so. And, um, you know, you had to think also, I mean, you know, being a young guy with, with tons of cash, you know, and Houses in California, I'm sure in certain areas were expensive, but certain areas also, it's like, buy that house, you know? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we sure. don't even know where the owner is, but the real estate or the bank's got it up for sale for 150000 It's like, no problem, I'll take it, you know? It's like, you're playing stadium shows <laughs> yeah, and getting paid out millions, you know, yeah, per year. They it's had uh, all the money in the world. Yeah. There was there was a while that they, they had bought in a mansion in Greenwich, Connecticut, that they mm-hmm. said was so big. The entire band lived in this mansion. Yeah. And Alice Cooper said that even after two years, there were still rooms that he had never been in. Right. Yeah. And so this is like million dollar babies time once again when they're doing the big show. And which is also when the band is kind of starting to break up. Yeah, they're starting to um, you know, it's interesting. It's like you look at Alice Cooper, he's got twenty eight albums throughout his entire career. You really wonder if the guy ever stopped working for a day, uh, the band started to fray at the ends because of the touring, yeah. which famously happens nearly with all bands. For sure. Right? Yeah, I yeah. mean, there's... And, and they also didn't like doing the gimmick thing anymore because, you know, everybody was starting to attribute Vincent as mm-hmm. being the character Alice Cooper. Right. Which was not the case, you know, when the band first started. Sure. I mean, they sort of went with it because it was working, but, you know, the band was sort of taking the back seat all the time. And of course, the money and the drugs start settling in as well. Right. So the guitar player, all of a sudden, he's kind of getting taken over by chemical alterations, yeah. and he's not playing the way that he, he used to play. Well, and it's interesting, too. It's like labels didn't have much, I mean, I don't know that they still do necessarily, but they didn't have much concern for the well-being of the artists. No. And we talked about that with Motley Crue, like in the dirt. Yeah. All of them, you know, or at least Nikki Six hooked on heroin, completely debilitated. And the record label just needed money. They just kept putting him on the road. Yeah. Even though he said multiple times, like, I need to try to focus on getting clean. Sure. And kick this habit. So 
you know, the band Alice Cooper was probably worked to the bone. Sure. But that, yeah, that was the model at those days though. I yeah. Mean, they were saying like, were you guys putting out a record a year? Two. Two records a year. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. But that's, yeah. It was, Zeppelin was on that trajectory too. It was like every nine months there'd be a new record. But yeah, it's, it's, it gives you a, such a profound respect for someone like Alice Cooper and the, you know, the band and all the people that supported the band. Yeah. Um, even roadies at that time, you know, you meet some roadies. They're like, I, you know, I worked for Metallica or whatever, or, you know, and they're, they would say, you know, yeah, we do, you know, three, 400 shows over a couple of years, you know, a year and a half, two years. We, they would go on the road. They would be there on the road with the band, supporting yeah. the band. Yeah. You know, it's giving really, up your entire lives to do this. Yeah. Sound guys that were like the sound guy for that particular act who yeah. really, really got all the front of house stuff that needed to be done, you know? So it's like Alice Cooper's, he's, you know, as an individual, especially because when the band split, then him and Bob Ezra started to work on Welcome to My Nightmare, which was the next big, you know, inception of his his genius, like yes. one step farther For sure. into that. Um, yeah. In fact, it was, Bob Ezra was sort of the marker in the career of the original band that sort of was the tipping point to the band not being the band that we know anymore. Uh -huh. He was initially hired to do Billion Dollar Babies, which I think is the second to last record that the original group does. Yes. Um, but he just kind of said, you know what? The group isn't, you know, at this point, the band has all the fame in the entire world, which mm -hmm. is always the hardest part for a group. When you're coming up, you're this gang of folks and you work together and it's you versus the world. But then once the world loves you and the world just tells you you're amazing all the time, mm -hmm. you know, it just really breaks down people's personalities and the art suffers, the camaraderie suffers. And that was happening here previously mm -hmm. when Bob would come in and say, Hey, we should trim this and trim that, you know, they would listen to him, but they kind of stopped listening to him. And so Bob said, you know what, this, maybe this isn't my thing anymore. So he kind of jumps off the boat mm -hmm. and hires on another producer and Billion Dollar Babies is okay. Even the band says, you know, it wasn't us firing on all cylinders. So by the time they complete their last record, else mm -hmm. the, the band sort of mutually decides that they're going to put it to sleep for the time being. But Alice Cooper doesn't stop working. That's when he brings Bob back in. <laughs> he says, all right, well, I'm going to do a solo record. But since he's known as Alice Cooper, he just can continue to call it Alice Cooper. And maybe not everybody notices the difference, but sure. that, wasn't, that wasn't the official band split. It wasn't until after the success of Welcome to My Nightmare that it was official. Like, all right, this is the direction I'm going in. Yeah. Vincent is now Alice Cooper. He's since changed his name from Vincent to Alice Cooper. Right. And just goes on that way. He had the foresight to keep going. He knew that he wanted to keep going. He had Bob Ezrin in his corner mm -hmm. to help him keep going. Yeah. Being a sideman on a, in a band, you know, or backing someone up on tour, you know, you could sometimes struggle to find the, the validity in it at times where it's, you know, you're just, you know, getting paid a rate, you know? So maybe the band, after they started to dissolve, it's, you know, fame and fortune came in, whatever things just relationships started to break down it's, yeah. it's all part of a huge of course tapestry of goings on but the bernie Taupin thing is interesting because i i keep wanting to know if uh 
if Elton John was ever miffed at Alice Cooper for stealing Bernie Taupin, I seem to remember, seem to recall a little factoid in there that Bernie Taupin was, was maybe in the middle of an Elton John something or other, but like sort of broke away to work with Alice for a, a little while. Really? Yeah. And I can't really quite find it. I, I, it might even be mentioned in his book, maybe three quarters of the way through. Mind you, his book is only... It's about two two hours and change long, so it's a really great listen, and it's really colorfully narrated by Alice Cooper himself. Yeah, but you just talk about like somebody who's just drawing things in. He was like smart enough and charismatic enough to bring in all these really talented people. He also worked with Joe Perry from Aerosmith when he first left the band, like in Bernie Taupin. Did? No, I'm sorry. Alice Cooper. Did. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Well, he's in Hollywood vampires now. Yes, Joe he is. Perry. now. Yeah. Speaking of Hollywood vampires. Yeah. That, that was sort of the coda to the Hollywood vampire story. Maybe if you've heard of them now, initially a drinking club eventually turns into a rehab center for all these, you know, ex rock stars. Yeah. And Johnny Depp for whatever reason, Johnny Depp is in the group. Johnny Depp. Yeah. Guitar player. Guitar. Yeah. Yeah. Musician. Musician, actor. All around artist. I mean, you know, it's, it's, look, us musicians can be real hard on actors because a lot of actors want to portray musicians and sometimes they do a good job and sometimes they don't. Yeah. But musicians are always like, you know, like, you know. Um, I I wasn't saying about Johnny Depp about his musical ability, which I could, but I'm not going to in this case. What I, I'm more about the fact that they're supposed to be like rehab, like everyone in the group, Generally speaking, somebody who used to have a terrible addiction to drugs or alcohol, blah, blah, blah. Uh And everyone in that group these days is cleaned up. Yeah, absolutely. Just a really quick, Alice Cooper helped uh, Dave Mustaine from Megadeth get sober. Really? Yeah, which is cool. I mean, the other thing that's cool about Alice Cooper about being a complete rock star, and here's the thing, is it's like, when drinking didn't work for him anymore, I mean, obviously drinking really, his wife almost left him. It stopped working. And it really, he went into, he did go into some some rehab facilities. He calls it a mental institution. There's obviously yeah. a component there that that probably played a big role in his sobering yeah. up. But he turns around and goes, yo, drinking doesn't work for me. Didn't work for Metallica. Doesn't work for any of these people. And he turns around and becomes a rock star of sobriety. Yes. And starts to like integrate all this, like, you know, he just, He's not like superimposing it on people. Yeah. But he's a guy you can go to who will be like, yeah, let me tell you my story. And that's a lot of what AA is, is, Mm -hmm. is, you know, let me tell you my story. Let me, let me help you maybe see yourself in me. Totally. What's more rock star than that? Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, um, and you know, he didn't go the way of a lot of guys who went too far. (laughs) He didn't, but I mean, there was a big intervention by his family who said, look, you need to leave, get out of your house. Because at that point he was drinking two cases of beer and a bottle of whiskey a day. It's a lot. Yeah. And he was saying he would, he would wake up in the morning, typically puke blood and then have a couple of beers and and be on his day. And he just watched TV all day. He was doing nothing. Right. Except for the two hours that he had the show. Right. You know, risking his life. Yeah. (laughs) At his his own show. (laughs) And so he'd always said that the one thing that was like keeping him, like the only moment that he wasn't, knocked up on alcohol or at least, you know, sober enough was when he was doing these shows. So mm-hmm. it was, you know, like it was a blessing and a curse. It's like the Alice, he would blame the Alice Cooper character as the guy who like makes him do the drinking and stuff. But yeah, whenever he was working, he was usually sober. Like he mm-hmm. was smart enough to put the work before the alcohol. Right. But regardless, the alcohol totally got in the way of his entire life, his yes. kids, his family, 
his wife, yeah, his wife had given him divorce papers. Like they were, they were basically filed. It was on its way. Right. Right. And, and then, yeah, he went into this mental institution and they said, you're not allowed to drink for 72 hours. Mm -hmm. And he says, oh no. But then 72 hours came up and it was the first time he had gone 72 hours with alcohol. Mm -hmm. And so he's like, all right, let's do 72 more. And then, yes. Then he went back to his wife. He says, Hey, I'm cleaned up. And she said, that's not enough. She's like, we're going to start going to church every week Uh because his wife, just like Alice Cooper, also had a father who was a minister. Mm. So that's the thing they have in common. The two of them both have minister fathers. Mm -hmm. So like that is in their DNA, shall we say. Sure. Yeah. But on that tip, as you, as you said, like, even though he is a devout Christian, he does, he doesn't push it down people's throats. No, I mean, he mentions a little bit at the end of the book. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's what works for him. Yeah. And, you know, I know there's, you know, in music and rock and roll, there's, there's, we always expect these, these entities to be, uh, you know, above everything, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of their, uh, their skill set and their fame and their, but, uh, you know, they're human too. Yeah. Some people need structure. For sure. I'm uh, excited about uh, these deviled eggs, I have to admit. I, uh, My in, stomach is growling. I'm in the exact same boat. All right. All right. Let's put a pin in it and uh, get to some food. Okay. Here we go. The LaCroix popped. What are we going to eat now? So we're, we're pairing what we're going to eat with a watermelon LaCroix. We are going to eat deviled eggs, everybody. I can hear you eating a deviled egg right now. I had to turn the microphones on because I didn't know if I was going to be able to get this thing recording before you got through all your deviled eggs. I, um, I can eat 24 hard-boiled eggs, which, um, for those who don't know, is two dozen eggs. Is, is that more or less than... What Cool Hand Luke eats, the movie Cool Hand Luke. It is exactly the amount. I made it that way so that I could I could mirror him. Yeah, who wouldn't want to? I can't ride a motorcycle, though. <laughs> but I can draw one on paper. Yeah. <laughs> Better than I can do. I can ride a horse. Yeah. Yeah, really well. No kidding. Uh-huh. Hmm. When did you have an opportunity to ride a horse? I grew up on, like, kind of a small horse farm. On Long Island, and um, I grew up riding. Mm. Yeah, so these are delicious, by the way. Yeah, Jeez, I was going to ask Louise, you like them. I love them. You're going to have to, I, as, as always. You've blown my mind. You're a very subtle chef. I wouldn't peg you as a chef. Like if you invited me over to your house for dinner, I probably would say no. <laughs> <laughs> no offense. You just don't. Good. Then I know that I've later learned that like you've worked in kitchens, you know, yeah. like proper knife technique, you know mm-hmm. how to like, you taught me how to make caramelized onions. Nice. Which now when I make my uh, juicy Lucy's, I always put caramelized onions on top oh, of them. Oh gosh. So yeah, I've actually learned a lot from you in this podcast. So Fantastic. you can never judge a book by its cover. Yeah. You know, because you're also thin. I usually don't take food advice from people who are thin. I'm like, yeah. That's okay, a wise thanks. choice. <laughs> that That's notoriously the way to do it. Yeah. But like I gotta say, these deviled eggs are quite delightful well thank you i mean i love making deviled eggs because there's so many things that you can do with a deviled egg right i think for me the problem is like not to put too much too much in there like there seems to be some some major points i mean essentially 
If you've never made a deviled egg, the first thing you got to do, obviously, is make a hard-boiled egg. This is how you do that. You put your eggs inside of a pot of water, and you turn the water on until it's at full boil. And I think you can put as many eggs as you want in there. Once your egg is at a full boil, you put a lid on top of it, turn the water off, and let it sit for 12 to 14 minutes. And what's nice about this technique is if you forget and let them go... 18, 20 minutes, they're still going to be fine. They're going to cook perfectly. They're not going to be overcooked. They're going to be great. After you do that, I usually put mine in a little ice bath because I don't like to handle a hot egg. But once they cool down, after you've drained the hot water, put in some ice, stick them in your refrigerator. I'm not sure how long. Overnight. That's what I say. Overnight. You put them in... Oh, you put the hard-boiled eggs when they cool down in the fridge overnight? Yeah, 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 yeah. So this morning I made them. And what you do is you, 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 you take off your shell, of course. And oh, by the way, one thing to help with making it easier to take the shell off before while you're boiling them, they say put in some salt, maybe a teaspoon or so of salt in the water that you're cooking. Apparently will make the egg easier to break and, and shell off of your hard-boiled egg. So, so I did that. I put a little bit of salt. I put a little bit of vinegar in there as well in my boiling water. And don't put it in until after the the water boils. Once it's boiling, put in that stuff, put on the lid, bada, bada, bada. Next day, you've got hard-boiled eggs. Cut those daddies in half. Take out your yolks, put those in a separate bowl. For these particular deviled eggs, I added three tablespoons of mayonnaise. I put in about a tablespoon of chopped capers. I put in a teaspoon of horseradish, uh, also a teaspoon of Dijon mustard, a couple of dabs of your favorite hot sauce. The recipe I read said Tabasco, but I used Cholula, which honestly, at the end when I tasted it, I didn't think it was spicy enough, so I ended up putting in a little bit of chipotle chili powder as well, just to give it a little bit more kick. Okay, from there, salt and pepper to taste. It's nice if you have chives, if you could dice up some chives, maybe a couple of teaspoons of that. That's really nice. I didn't have chives, so I just used a couple of pieces of red onion. Not much, just enough to give it a little bit of a kick. Minced up real small. I also put in a little bit of celery because I wanted it to have a little tiny bit of crunch. And I minced that celery. Like everything in here needs to be really small because you don't have much surface area here. Yep. You know, you've just got you got a little ball of room to put all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Then you just mush those guys up. I had a little, like, potato masher that I just used in my bowl and mashed it up and stirred it up and then put it inside. What I didn't put, which I love to put in, is anchovies. I oh. find anchovies to be a really nice little element. Huh. Yeah. That would have been interesting. Yeah. I mean, it gives you your... Gives you your umami flavor, gives you your salt, puts a little bit of fishiness in it. It's really nice. And then, of course, always you have to you have to powder paprika over top of it. Mm. That's what gives it its its flavor. But essentially, deviled eggs, um, you know, they're very popular in North America. Apparently, they're they're popular in Italy everywhere. I mean, they're they're all over the world, but they call them different stuff. Deviled is the way that they do them here. But for a while, like in like the around the 50s or so, the Christians wanted to stop calling them deviled eggs. I think started calling them 
Russian eggs or stuffed eggs because they didn't like to attribute devil to the title. Would you like some more? I would. Okay, come. <laughs> Take as many as you wish. I prepared seven. Really? Which gives us 14. Okay. Yeah. I don't want to eat all of them. So. I don't This is our dinner. This is actually the these the most simple dinner, like food we've prepared. I've always preferred like a meal. These are just deviled eggs. Is deviled eggs lunch? Can be. Yeah. These are excellent. <laughs> you must have been egg static with how they came out. Exactly. <laughs> uh, it sort of reminds me the other day I was with my son. We were at Legoland and there's a pirate part so then i spent like the next 30 minutes trying to think of all the pirate jokes i possibly could there are a lot of them yeah yeah well you, you can just make them up with anything that begins with r yeah that's true yeah what's a what's a pirate's favorite 70s rock band i don't know argent they're a band argent is a band yeah I know Argent. And God gave rock and roll to you. God gave rock and roll to you. Tons of great stuff, man. So much there to unpack. So yeah, double digs in every in every country, they call them something different. In uh in France they call them mimosa eggs. Why mimosa eggs? I don't know. But part of me wanted to attach some Frenchness to our dish because I think Alice Cooper's last name is French. Monier. Oh. Something like that. He's also uh, part Native American, Alice Cooper. Really? Yeah. (gasps) And his father actually performed a successful exorcism uh, on an Indian reservation. Uh, which was really quite interesting. He's had a very colorful, uh, very colorful past. Alice Cooper, you know, definitely uh, one of those one of those people we can count on that that is, uh, you know, sort of rides that cool edge of just like witchiness and fame, as yeah. as it were. Apache, maybe I think he's part Apache Indian. Yeah, you know that's what brought. Alice Cooper and his family back to Arizona in the first place is that they were going back there to try to convert Native Americans into Christianity. Ah. Yeah. So they they sort of went there. That that was ended up being Alice Cooper's father's calling. Right. So yeah, that's what brought him to Arizona. And actually, right when they got back, Alice Cooper had a terrible case. He was starting to feel sick and went to the hospital and turned out had a terrible case of appendicitis. Yeah. His appendix had blown, but the doctor said that they couldn't remove it at that time because it had already had infused all, into all of his organs or something like that. So they actually thought he was going to die. So they said, like, he, he you know, we're going to let him try to write it out, and if, if, if he survives the next period of time, then we're going to be able to actually remove his appendix. Mm-hmm. And so the parents did a lot of praying. And this is kind of like a major point in like the Alice Cooper Christianity turn. Right. That sort of like all ties it together. You know, there's a lot of things that happened in Alice Cooper's life that he sort of attributes to 
you know, God sort of saving him. Yeah. And this was one of those moments. Uh-huh. As well as when the Alice Cooper's initial van, as they were moving to LA, toppled over. It mm-hmm. flipped three times. Right. And all the members of the band were, uh, you know, they survived. They, mm-hmm. like their equipment had broke. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the same kind of tragic, you know, van rolling is, has ended the careers of so many bands. Sure. The Exploding Hearts, they, they were a five-piece band. The van rolled and it killed four of the five members. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Or the, the, the bus incident with Metallica that killed Cliff Burton. Yeah. You know, like. Quite a the, lot. Yeah. The, yeah. These, these sort of things don't usually end up so positively. But, sure. You know, Dallas Cooper was like, well, it's God looking over us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it makes sense. I mean, he's got a lot of um, <clears throat> near-death experiences, things that really kind of like connected him with his more divine power or higher power, if you will. There's two left. You want one? I'll have one. Yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll eat the last two together. Cheers. <laughs> Egg cheer. We'll bring the one tonight, right? That's all we're going to eat. All day. Pat's <laughs> like, God, those things stink. <laughs> <laughs> well played. Those will go great on top of a burger. They, they would. Are you sad that I didn't bring a burger this time? Yeah, I thought you were. I we, think now I feel like every time I see you, you're going to have a, you're just going to pull like a burger out of your pocket and give it to me. Yeah. We have been the burger guys, the hot dog guys. It's funny. That, that was actually another possibility when I was looking at local food. There's a hot dog that is particularly Arizonian in nature. It's supposed to be like the answer to the Coney dog. I forgot to look what's in it, but. Oh. Yeah. It's got like the Sonoma dog or something. Mm-hmm. But I didn't do that. For me, the food absolutely had to have some piece of like scariness to it. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could have jammed a couple of gummy bears in there or something. <laughs> Not that gummy bears are scary, but oh. could you make a deviled egg with like, you know, you could put like candy spiders in there and some gummy worms. It wouldn't taste very good. No, it and you would good. you wouldn't want to put it on your you wouldn't want to put it in the show notes about your your recipe for it. Yeah, but I mean, it still should be good at the end of the day. <laughs> if you took a hard-boiled egg and you just stuffed it with, like, Sour Patch Kids. <laughs> I'm glad that I do the cooking in our podcast. and Wash and it down with a jolt, a jolt cola. And- have you, you're, all of this sort of, like, makes me think of, like, have you ever had the, uh, the Weird Al <laughs> Twinkie Dog? No. <laughs> what you do is you take a hot dog. Well, first you take a Twinkie. You take a Twinkie. You cut it open like a bun. You uh-huh. stick in a cold hot dog, and then you put on cheese whiz, and then put on jelly beans. That is, see, that's a little bit more of what I was thinking. Like, yeah, Alice Cooper could be, but yeah, I guess yeah, this is definitely better. The deviled egg was definitely better. Oh man, those deviled eggs are good, and they're repeating, which is nice. I'm enjoying them again. Yeah, <laughs> thanks to this Lacroix. Yeah, the Lacroix does does bring out some uh, some nice notes. From the deviled egg. I like the mustard. Yeah. It's yeah. got that mustard's just got that like super distinct quality of yeah. being like spicy in a non-spicy way. And yeah, it's and a different tart kind of spice. In a, yeah. Yeah. Mustard is so wonderful. Yeah. So you gotta have one of those guys in. You also have to have like an actual heat element. Right. And then right. of course salt and pepper to drive it all together. I also like to have a little bit of crunch. I think typically that's why you would have your your chives in there, even though chives aren't all that crunchy. That's why I put in the celery. Like to me, celery. the celery is what brings home the crunch, which. Now, could you use, could you use celery seeds? Uh, 
Because I like to put celery seeds in my in my tuna fish. Really? It gives it that like deli kind of quality that I like. I would say why not? I'm not really well versed in celery seed. Is it the flavor that you like about celery seed? I don't. It I yeah, it's the flavor I like about celery seed because it's actually a little more potent in a weird way than celery is. Yeah, typically like when I'm making these things, I put in the actual celery because I also like the crunch that's involved. Like Yeah, the crunch is 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 you need the crunch when you when you when you're using celery. I mean that's I guess that's mainly what it's for when you when you want that kind of texture, you know. Yeah. Uh that's great. I'm gonna rush right out and get me some celery seed. Yeah, they're super <laughs> cheap too. I mean they're like, you know Yes. It's like a, it's like I don't know, like two dollars for a whole thing, and you only use a little bit each time. So. Yeah, and and that's another nice thing about this food that we made. It's it's economical. I mean, depending on like how uh, nice you want your eggs to be, you can still get you know like a, a factory farm egg making non organic eggs are sitting in cages for you know you can get a dozen for maybe two bucks. Yeah, or if you want to get your organic, you know the, these chickens they live off the land and they they eat grain and I don't know, whatever, like the most natural way, the organic, you'll spend eight bucks yeah, on a dozen eggs. Depends which way you want to go. <laughs> yeah. But, but at the end of the day, you, you slice it in half. It's, it's pretty reasonably priced. Yeah. And they're great. You know, I'm always, I'm always a little bit psyched when people bring deviled eggs to like, um, like a potluck or, uh, like a cocktail hour kind of thing or uh, like a cookout. I'm yeah. always like, Oh, cool. You know, somebody's somebody's on burgers and dogs, somebody's on salads, and then somebody brings like a big old plate of deviled eggs. It's like, oh, nice, you know? Totally. Because it's just protein. Yeah. And are you, you know? like me? I, I like sit by there and be like, okay, did everybody have one? Can I have another one? Oh, yeah. I'm oh, huge. I'm huge at the waiting game. People be People's being polite is the reason why I actually have any body weight at all. Yeah. You know? <laughs> They're like, oh, I don't want the last burger, you know? I'm like, if you don't. And you don't. Yeah. You're engrossed in a conversation. That guy went to the bathroom. Well, <laughs> I'm the same way. Yeah. I, like because that's always the politeness thing. Yep. Yeah, everyone, nobody will have the last bite, the last egg, the last chip. And I'm always like, you know what? I'm going to do everybody a favor. I'm going to eat this, and then we can get rid of this empty Tupperware container. Yeah. Exactly. Make a little room. Yep. Break it out. Yeah. I mean, that's you know, it's like look, skinny guys with a fast metabolism. You got to be that way because it's like, I'll sit there and my stomach will start growling and then I'm just like, ah, then I'll get in a bad mood. Yeah. What am I going to do? Just sit here and look at this? (laughs) It's not, it is beautiful, but it's not, it's not here for us to like enjoy its artistic merit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like one of my close friends I used to go out to lunch with all the time would, when he would eat, he would eat so slow. He'd be sitting there and laughing and telling stories and I'd be like, you want to eat the rest of your damn lunch before I eat it? And then he would get it to go. Yeah. And then he would eat the second half of it for dinner. Yeah. When I'm it's like, cold and it sucks. Yeah. I'm like, who the hell are you? What are you, Bette Midler? <laughs> Eating your, your niçoise salad for dinner and enjoying it. And laughing and telling stories during dinner too. Yeah. The nervous on people. These people. But right. yeah. Well, cool, man. Oh, hey, uh, well, how about a little tidbit of uh, Alice Cooper uh, trivia? Did you know that he sang backup vocals on Johnny Cash's cover of Personal Jesus? Oh, I did not know that at all. It's That's amazing. True. But yet uh, Johnny Cash was not in the room when it was done. 
Oh. They, they called him up. They called him up one day, old Rick Rubin, and he says, "Hey, you want to come see backup vocals?" He's like, "Sure." And he comes down there, and he's like, "Where's Johnny?" He's like, "Hey, he's at home." Yeah. So he just <laughs> recorded some vocals. Adele says, "You know, I recorded it. I'm not even sure if it's on the record or not, but I did record it." So there you go. That's really cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, I think he does a lot of like backing vocals. I think he did some backing vocals for Guns N' Roses as well. No kidding. Yeah, co-lead vocals on the Garden. Oh, that's really cool. Yep. Just a guy who loves music. Absolutely. Him and the Cheap Trick guys. The Cheap Trick guys end up singing backup vocals for a lot of stuff, too. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah, that's I cool. I forget what. You'll have to listen back to the Cheap Trick episode, but I, think I uncovered some. And, you know, just in case you didn't know, Alice Cooper has replaced his love of drinking with golf and is now one of the, like, a very excellent golfer. If you know anything about golf, which I know very little, they say he has a handicap of four. That's amazing. Yeah. So, and Alice has said there are times where he considers giving up rock and roll for a couple of years and really putting everything into his golf game to see if he can go play with the pros because he's, he's pretty good. Wow. There's tons of famous people that notoriously, if they're having problems with their golf game, they'll talk to him. Like for instance, he was telling a story about when he first met Lou Reed back in the day, mm -hmm. like I think it was in the Chelsea hotel and you know, him and Lou end up talking and you know, it's during more of the druggy days later, much later in everybody's career in life, Lou Reed sees Alice Cooper. He's like, Hey, Alice, Hey, I got to ask you, I, I'm slicing right. What do I got to do? And I was like, well, you just got to loosen up on your left hand. That's my story. That's pretty funny. Yeah. Well, cool, this man. Was fun. Yeah. Thanks for having me over. Yeah, of course. Thanks for the thanks for the deviled eggs. For sure, yeah. It was great doing the old deep dive on Alice Cooper. The Coops. The Coops. That's what that's what the people in the know call him. In the know? In the know. People who know him, they call him Coop. They call him Coop? Yeah. I can see that. Yeah. He's a super fun guy. Totally. That's a great name, too. Yeah, man. Cool. Awesome. Well, great, great to uh split eggs with you. And uh <laughs> <laughs> and uh, have a great uh have a great day. C congratulations on your uh, last day here at, uh, at school. Thanks, buddy. I'll yeah. see you later tonight. All right. Ciao, buddy. Bye. Bye. Wonderfully delicious deviled eggs. Make some up today. Bring them to Thanksgiving dinner. Thanks again to Charlie Schmidt for coming on the show. Listeners, thank you for supporting my efforts and putting this show out. It's the first one of its kind, right? Do me a favor. Tell someone who likes music and food all about us. I want to be sharing all of this deliciousness with more folks. Please rate and share, comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever a platform allows you to do so. Next week, we're talking about the recent rock and roll inductee, Pat Benatar. It's going to be a great episode, I promise you. Until then, I'm Nathan Palin, saying cook on and rock out. Happy Thanksgiving. Ciao, ciao.